Did you know there was a free five-part podcast series all about classroom management? In this series, learn how I went from using traditional classroom management strategies without a lot of success to becoming a behavior detective. Discover how I help children with root cause of their behavior issues instead of just addressing the behavior itself. If you want to take a listen to this new series, just check the show notes. You're listening to the Lovely Preschool Teachers Podcast, the podcast for quick, actionable ideas and tips to help you up your confidence and joy in educating little learners. I'm your host, Ashley Rives. Let's get to the show. Hey there, welcome back. And if you're new here, thanks for joining us. You are listening to episode 73, When Behavior Supports Aren't Working. This episode is the fifth episode in a five-part series on classroom management. If you missed some of the others, go on back and take a look for episode 69, The Honest Truth About Behavior Charts, episode 70, Beware of Classroom Rewards, episode 71, What Student Behaviors Are Telling You, and episode 72, Going Beyond Managing Behaviors. So today, We're talking about what to do when those things that we have talked about in the other episodes just really aren't working. So if you missed any of those, it would be great to go back to those and listen to those first. And um, let's, let's dive in. So if you've been around the teaching block at all, you know that even when we do all the things, all the prep, all the teaching around expectations in the classroom, trying to help young children learn what is acceptable and what is not, it still sometimes isn't enough. So that prep and teaching around expectations in my classroom would look like, you know, from the very start, making sure I have a visual schedule in place so children know what is coming next and what we're going to do just to kind of help curb some of that anxiety and just the questions of what are we going to do next? And I also deliberately teach my procedures at the beginning of the year, every year for multiple weeks until we've kind of got them under control. And this would be, you know, all of our procedures of coming to the carpet, how to clean up, how to get in line, how to walk in line, just, you know, all the little tiny things. So I'm doing all of those. And then I'm also in my classroom infusing in some of the social emotional learning Not only in the moment, helping children learn how to navigate these problems that they're having, maybe with peers or, you know, with themselves, but also doing it through social emotional lessons in a very deliberate way to kind of help bring that conversation to the classroom and make kind of a touching point that we can touch back on as a class. So I'm doing all of those things and I'm being very consistent and I'm being very deliberate. So I'm doing the things that I think that are going to help make my year that much easier after we get all of these things down. And for the most part, and for most students, this works. But as we all know, we do have students that it doesn't always work for, that they need a little bit more. Something's going on and what we've tried so far isn't working. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. And I want to tell you a story of two different preschoolers I've had in the past that I definitely had to take a 
more in-depth approach with to really see what was going on. So I'm going to try to kind of help guide you through um, what I did and, you know, some of the things that I wish I would have done to really help these children also be successful in my classroom. So I want to start with the story of the little girl who was too tired to stand up. It was January, so mid-year, and she came to me with all of my other children having been in school since August. So she's brand new to school and she's coming in the middle of the year. So she missed a lot of those new growing days of when we're all learning all the procedures and all the things together. So this also helped her kind of stick out like a sore thumb. And that's exactly what she did. And with never having been in a school setting, there became a lot of major disruption in the classroom. Lots of screaming, lots of running, lots of defiance, very little interest in activities outside of Play-Doh, very little interest in any relationships. And so obviously you can imagine as I'm rolling along with my class and we get to January and it kind of feels like this magical time where we've got everything in the classroom under control and we can really start doing some amazing things and digging in and things take a change. And I think it's hard as a teacher because as much as I know this one child needs me, I also have to be incredibly aware that I have nine other children who need me nine other children who have been with me since August. And so that balancing act of helping this one child, but also making sure that my other nine are okay and still getting what they need is probably the hardest thing that I feel like I have done in the education world is that balance of, I know you need me, but it's not that these other children don't. And, you know, I, I know you're probably shaking your head yes, because it, it feels so incredibly hard because there's only one of you, but we're going to talk about that as, as well. So after a couple of extremely rough days, I asked mom to come in and talk. I needed to learn more about what was really going on in this child's life and just get some better understanding because, you know, what we were seeing was not something that I had seen for quite some time in a classroom. And I just didn't know which way to go. So after talking to mom, I'm, I learned that she works nights and this child was being put to bed by teenage babysitters. She also informed me that the child took a nap at 10 a.m. every day and she's four. And as we're talking, the little girl fell asleep standing up. I have honestly never seen anyone fall asleep standing up. So it frightened me because she fell to the floor. And, you know, as I'm helping this child, she's like, yeah, she does that. And it hit me that this child is exhausted. Like people don't just fall asleep standing up for no reason. She is exhausted. And if she naps at 10 a.m., she's in my classroom And she's not getting that need met because we don't nap at 10 a.m. in the classroom. So it was incredibly clear that Maslow's hierarchy of needs was definitely at play here, along with a lot of other things. But 
I knew we had to start at the bottom, right? We had to get that need of sleep met or she wasn't going to be able to function and learn anything new from me, make any connections, really make any progress without that sleep. And unfortunately, mom wasn't willing to help her get the sleep she needed. She liked her sleeping at 10 a.m. because it helped her. Um, So we had no choice but to really offer that opportunity to her during the school day. So many days she took a nap and she napped for about an hour or so. And we noticed after those naps, she was much more able to control her body, much more able to focus on kind of what we were asking her to do. Now, you know, I said there was lots of things going on here. And we definitely were working with a child that had never been in, you know, in a school setting, had never really had a lot of expectations. And so we were working through a lot of things. But when the sleep was a barrier, we weren't getting anywhere. I tell you the story, because I know that you can relate to having those challenging behaviors in your classroom. But I also like to think about what might have happened if I would have just assumed she was an out-of-control child and used punishments. Would I have been serving her? You know, we tried so many different things with her before the sleeping. So many different things. Um, You know, just, uh, her she had her own procedure card so that she knew exactly what was coming next. I, you know, went right up to her and told her, we're getting ready to clean up. I need you to clean up these things. Can you help me? Just, she had such a mountain to climb and we were trying to take it step by step, but nothing was working. So, you know, in a traditional program, this may have been a child that they said, nope, we can't help you get out. And while that is really hard for me, I understand because sometimes we don't have the manpower And that's what it kind of felt like with this. Like, I don't have the manpower for this. And if I would have fought these timeouts, if I would have fought these, you know, whatever they would have been, punishments or rewards or tried to do all those things, it wouldn't have worked. She would have lived in timeout or she would have had to been removed from my classroom hourly if I went that route. It wasn't what was best for her. It wasn't what was best for me. And it wasn't what was best for the other children in my classroom because that deteriorated our classroom environment. Me having to constantly chase her or put her in timeout or keep her in timeout while she's screaming bloody murder, none of that helped my classroom environment. And so I knew that I needed help. And this is something that for a lot of people may feel defeating, the asking for help part but it didn't feel defeating to me because it wasn't about me. It was about the fact that I had one child in my classroom that needed more assistance than one person could give. I also had nine other children in my classroom that needed her to get the assistance she needed so that they could also get what they needed. So when we talk about asking for help, I just urge you to think about it from a place of I am not a superwoman. Like, I feel like, yes, I can do a lot of things and I can do a lot of things well. But I'm also realistic enough to know that some things we can't do and that's okay. And asking for help doesn't mean that you have failed. It actually, I believe, means the opposite. And it means you're very aware of what your children need in your classroom. 
So I asked for help and I got the help because our director is amazing. But I'm also aware that some of you may not have that. It might be an uphill battle. It might be really strongly advocating for your children over and over again, which I am so sorry that that's happening in our education system. And please know that when I was in the public education system, I had to advocate constantly and it's exhausting. And it's part of the reason why, you know, our teachers don't want to do this anymore. But I digress. Please know it's okay to ask for help. And even if you have to demand it, because it's your well-being, it's your mental space as well. And it says nothing about you except that you are willing to go the extra mile to get your children what they need. So to wrap up this story, I had help. And that person was pretty much with her the whole day, working with her and, you know, giving her that nap and then working through all the things until mom abruptly pulled her out. And so I don't have a way to wrap up this story with a pretty little bow. I have no idea where that child is. I have no idea how that child's doing. Um, She would be in first grade or so now. Oh, no, older than that, actually. Oh, gosh. And I, I don't know. And I, you know, very often think and pray for her. But her coming into my life definitely was challenging, but also opened my eyes to just how important it is for us to really see what's going on in a child's situation, really looking, you know, kind of under all these layers of behavior to what is really going on. And while I don't feel like I had the chance to really dig as deep as I would have liked to really, you know, really address the things that she really needed, it was a great reminder and lesson of don't look at that surface behavior, because if you dress just that surface behavior, if we would have just addressed her surface behavior, we wouldn't have known she needed the sleep. And it wasn't really her fault. She wasn't getting the sleep because she was only four. So just to wrap that up, of please remember asking for help is honestly something that you can do for the children in your classroom and yourself. And there's nothing wrong with it. And to we have to look deeper to really find what's going on. My second story we'll call A Fidget in Your Pocket. It's about a little guy who had a great big personality and a love for life. Um, He was definitely one of my most memorable kiddos. He always had the biggest smile on his face and he was just so excited about life. It was pretty evident early on that he was going to need a little extra help from me. He often had a hard time keeping his hands to himself, and sometimes his hands would hurt others. He also got overstimulated sometimes and lost control of his body, which of course was dangerous to those around him and possibly him. So when we were at carpet time or in a line, I would often hear, he pinched me or he's poking me. And so, of course, naturally, it would make the other children kind of want to stay away from him, not sit by him, not stand by him in line, not play with him, because they didn't know what his hands were going to do. Now, to know this child is to love this child and to also understand that he loved deeply for others. So it was hard for him to put those things together, that my hurting fingers and hands are what's keeping that person from wanting to be around me. And I see this problem so often, and I'm, I know you do too. 
of children that hurt other children, but when they get hurt back, they're very upset, very not okay with it, but they don't see the correlation. We can talk until our, you know, faces are red about how, oh, you know, that hurts them. And the way you're feeling is the way that they feel when you hurt them. Something's just not connecting there for a lot of our kiddos. And they must be getting something out of what they're doing to the other children, whether it's attention, whether it's just an inability to control their bodies. It's our job to kind of help them figure that out because as many times as we put them in timeout or, you know, ask them to sit out or ask them to apologize or talk to them constantly about, you know, you're you're hurting that friend and they're not going to want to play with you. If none of it's sinking in, it's really not helping. You're just doing the same thing over and over again. So with this kiddo, it's kind of the same way. It was, he didn't like if someone else touched him, but he couldn't couldn't put that together of why those people were upset with him. So without further observation or relationship building with this child and really trying to understand who he was and see what the real problem was, I might have come to an incorrect conclusion that he was just a handsy guy and he needed to walk with me in the line. So he was always at the front so that he was safe or, you know, he needed to just sit out when he hurt others every single time and eventually he would figure it out. The problem with that, though, was that excluding him wouldn't help him learn how to handle it. Would it make my life easier? Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> but it wouldn't have helped him find a way to be around others without losing control of himself. He needed a strategy. He needed a way to cope with this feeling that he was having. And, you know, some of you may be like, wait, stop. He, you know, maybe he should have went down the road of getting evaluated and things like that. And those things were taking place in the background. And you know, as we know, those things can work very slowly. And I knew I was in the moment right now. So we needed to figure out solutions for right now, while those other things were playing out. So I just started trying things. I started trying things that would make sense. I started talking this out with other people. What do you think might work? Started talking to mom, what have you tried? And first we tried a weighted backpack. He hated that thing. And it didn't really help keep his hands busy. So that was a no-go. We tried having him put his hands in his pockets, but, you know, they got too fidgety in there. And so they would come out and get fidgety. And if he was close to someone else, then that's when the problem would occur. Um, So I noticed him one day playing with these like rubbery, like buses or like counters. There's planes and trains and buses and stuff. And he was playing with those. And I was like, you know what? He often plays with those. That's pretty common for him to want to line these up and drive these and mess with these. So I was like, you know what, let's just give it a whirl. My thought was if he had something to put in his hand, then maybe he wouldn't be touching others. And he really, really likes these things. So they must be giving him some sort of satisfaction. So my plan was to let him have this bus or whichever one he chose for that day in the hallway while we walked in the line and also at whole group, he got to hold the bus. Now I did put ground rules on this because obviously, you know, 
this can get out of hand and can just feel like a toy at the carpet. I really needed it to be an aid for him to help him get through those moments when he felt like, you know, reaching out and poking or pinching or touching or doing things with his fingers to the children around him. So my ground rules were that it couldn't be thrown. We couldn't be playing with it. It needed to stay in our hands and it needed to be not touching anyone else. So we talked about these rules over and over again and he would carry his fidget in the hallway. And then we got where they were going. When we got where we were going, he would put his, put this fidget in his pocket or in mine, whoever had a pocket that day. And during whole group, he got to hold it and play with it quietly if needed. And it was crazy because with that bus toy in place, we were seeing dramatically less issues with pinching and poking. It had worked better than anything else we had tried. I also found kind of a secret sauce with this bus fidget toy and doing a little bit of heavy work when possible. So having him push the tub of lunch boxes in was kind of heavy work for him. We like to try to do things that, you know, were a little bit harder made him use his muscles before we sat down at carpet time. I also found that I couldn't do anything that riled him up. So any crazy songs or silliness, just send him right over the edge. That would not be helpful for when we were going to sit. So he, you know, got lots of different jobs that dealt with things that were a little bit heavier. Like we put our recess balls in the bucket every day or take them out every day. Different things to kind of help him use up some of that free energy that he had going. Now, I know you're probably wondering, some of you, of, okay, great, well, he gets all these things, but the other children are going to want them too. So do I now have to give a bus fidget to everyone? And I will definitely say this is definitely like a soapbox thing for me. We, our job, I believe, is to be doing our best to be giving every child what they need. He needed something to keep his fingers busy. Other children did not. Other children saw it was a problem. Other children wanted him to find a solution because they were the ones getting those busy fingers poked on them and they didn't like it, right? I let everyone in the class explore the bus counters, right? One day we all got to carry them. Guess what happened? It's what happens every time I do this. They didn't find them that interesting because they didn't have the need he did great, I got to carry a bus that really did not fill up my bucket and I don't know why I'm carrying it. So I let them try it, but you're going to find that they're not going to find it that interesting. I also explained to the class every year, regardless of who is in our class, helping them understand that everyone has different ways to learn And everyone needs different things from me. And that's okay, because everyone's unique. You know, we talk about this all about me unit, and everybody's different, and it's amazing. Well, everyone learns different too. And you, when you really kind of open up that narrative, you'd be surprised at how much children already pick up on the fact that that one child is struggling. Like they know, right? They know. They know that you have to talk to them more often. They know that they need more assistance. They want them to get the assistance because it makes their life a little bit easier too. And when I approach it from the, this child is still learning this skill and he or she needs this help, it really, they're just like, okay, great. 
And it's why I consider preschoolers so much more intuitive and kind than most adults on the planet. Because they see, okay, he needs that. Great. Great. I'm glad for him. And they even go a step further and go, oh, do you need your fidget? Let me help you. Or did you forget it? They're wanting to help him be successful. That's what makes preschoolers the most amazing age to work with. Because they're not judging that. They're saying, oh, you just need help? Well, we know how to help people. Approaching it from that side really helps the whole class learn empathy and really helps them see that person for them. It's just something they need. It's not a big deal, right? It doesn't define them. It's not who they are. They're not a, quote, bad kid because they need a fidget in their hand. It's just what they need. It's no big deal. And when we start doing that, the empathy starts flowing into our classroom and we're teaching them something that they're going to use way later on in life. They're going to encounter different children and different adults in their life with different learning needs, different everything, right? That's what makes it so special that we're all different. And they're going to have a better understanding of that's just what that person needs. No big deal. So that's my soapbox. I'm going to step off of it. But I I do encourage you to try out really letting that person, that child have what they actually need and not worry so much about what everyone else is going to think or if everyone's going to get upset. Put it out there. You do not have to. Something you know you need to be careful about is not pointing out to a child. If they have point pointed out a child like, he's always poking me, he's always poking me. You know, I usually say everyone has different needs. Some people need to learn how to control their body parts. Other people need to learn how to talk kindly. Other people need, you know, all these different things that, and this is what he needs from me. So that's why I'm going to help him. That's what I do. I help kids learn things they don't know. And it's just like, okay, well, that's the answer. So to be more specific, I don't, you know, obviously point out a child and say, this child has a problem. It only comes up in conversation when other children are bringing it up. And this often happens with, why is he doing that? Or why won't he do that? Or why is he not being good? I hear that a lot. And that's when I can address that. But I'm not usually bringing it up because I don't want to put a spotlight on the child if there isn't one. But I definitely want to open up the conversation to be very inclusive and very empathetic if that need arises. So the story of the fidget in your pocket ends our year with being very successful, making so much incredible progress, building a ton of empathy in our classroom with everyone, and really having some great memories with this child. Sadly, it ends, you know, a little bit differently when he goes to kindergarten. I hear back from mom um, wanting to know what are some things that worked in the classroom, they're struggling in kindergarten. So I'm telling her the things that we've done. And one of the big ones is keeping his fingers very busy. So we talk about that. And she informed me that, yes, indeed, she had told them all about that because I was, you know, obviously in contact with mom and telling her what we were doing and what worked. And they said they weren't willing to do that because it was a toy and he didn't need a toy in the hallway. And it was crushing. It was crushing to me because I knew this kid and I knew what he needed. And I had poured so much of my own love and just blood, sweat and tears into helping this child. And, you know, he went on and he didn't get what he needed and he was constantly in trouble. 
I don't know what happened after kindergarten. Um, I'm hoping he's thriving and doing amazing. But it's just one of those things that is defeating as a teacher. But I also like to look back and go, you know what? I gave him some skills that he might still be using to this day. And even though, you know, he was, I mean, he had a little bit of a disservice done to him in kindergarten. I can, I can sleep better knowing that I did what I could for him and the best that I could for him. The biggest takeaways I want you to have when it comes to both of these stories is that there is no one size fits all solution for every child. This is why I believe that behavior problems don't work because we're looking at one solution for every child. And while we can do those things we've talked about to try to set up for success and and really make sure that we are providing guidance and giving them all the instructions and really teaching them, sometimes it doesn't work. And we have to go back and really become behavior detectives. Observations, teaching, trial and error, patience, those things work. And also knowing that some days are just hard. Don't get down on yourself or your kiddos when you feel like you're failing. Some days are just hard. I remember telling um, one of our teachers who had been in elementary and came down to preschool, and she's like, what am I doing wrong? I feel like I'm doing something wrong. It was just a horrible day. And, you know, my answer was some days are just hard. You're working with some pretty irrational humans, these preschoolers, and some days are just hard. Accept that fact and move on from it and just say it is what it is. And if you can even expect some of the hard days so they don't blindside you, I feel like that's even better. Well, it's bound to happen, right? Some days are just hard. And I also like to try my best to put my feelings aside of what that day was with a particular student or with a whole class and start new because that lingering negativity or even punishments lingering for either you or your students, it's it's not serving you. It's not helping you move forward. And also, I encourage you to know when to ask for help, even if it's just a breather, right? <laughs> this is something that I've had to do for sure is just say, you know what? I just need a little bit of time because we're human too. And we're feeling those emotions and we're trying to control them the best we can. And sometimes that means listening to ourselves and saying, I just need about five minutes. So asking for another pair of eyes, you know, to watch those children while you really just breathe through it, get your mind right and be able to go back in with that calm. Or even asking for another pair of eyes to come observe behaviors. You're you're like, I I don't know what is, you know, what is going on here. I can't see it. Maybe you're too close to it. Having someone else come watch or talking it over with them. This is what's happening. It helps so much because then it's not just your brain. It's someone else's too that has had experiences that, you know, can see from, from farther away of, hmm, I wonder if it's this. Have you done this? is really what I think teaching collaboratively is all about. It's that about that problem solving and, you know, helping, having someone else help you with that, I think is being the best teacher you can be. And also venting. Sometimes we just need to vent. 
I read something recently that was talking about how we can just ask people when they're venting, like, do you need help solving this or do you just want to vent about it? And I feel like as teachers, many times we want to vent. That's why a lot of people say the teacher's lounge is a, you know, kind of a toxic place because we all go in there and vent. But I think it's needed. I know it's needed for me just to kind of get all that, oh my gosh, I just want to scream and pull my hair out. And once I kind of get all of that out of my body and get that, you know, junk out of my head, then I can kind of move forward over it. But if I don't do that and I let it stew, it makes it harder for me. So knowing yourself and knowing that it's okay to vent when you need to or ask for a breather when you need to, it's important. And we need to start normalizing asking for help in the teaching realm. The truest fact of teaching little people is that it's hard and it's more than okay to ask for help. In fact, knowing your limit and asking for help to me isn't a weakness. It's self-awareness, which is exactly what we teach our children, right? We teach them to have self-awareness so that they can control their bodies. And if that's something that we need, we need to express that. I need help with this right now. I need a breather right now. None of that says anything about our weaknesses, but it says everything about the fact that we are able to put ourselves aside, get it together, and be able to go back in the classroom the best that we can. And I know that becoming a behavior detective really feels like a lot more work. And it is. But with that work, we have a bigger payoff. We actually see progress. We see things working. Instead of just doing things the same way over and over again, expecting a different result, we are doing something different and getting a different result. So I have a couple of things that you can do to become a behavior detective. And these steps will just kind of, you know, take you through what can I think about when I really want to find out what's going on beneath the surface. So first, try to keep your assumptions at bay. Look at what's being observed and try to forget what you might think the reason is that it's happening. So for example, if I am watching a child hit another child because they didn't get what they wanted, I might jump to, well, they're kind of bratty. They must be able to get whatever they want at home. Well, one of these might be a fact. They maybe do not have anyone else at home. And so therefore they don't know how to share, but you're taking the assumption of, well, they're just bratty and don't know how to share. Instead of saying, okay, I see this happening. I wonder why it's happening. So I'm hoping you can see the difference there. Also, some considerations. Is the behavior a problem? Start writing that down. Like, is this always happening during a certain time of day? Is this always happening with a certain child, right? Does this occur happening with just adults? All those things are considerations. Has there been changes in the child's life at home or school? And this may mean reaching out to parents and just asking very vaguely, have there been any changes at home or anything? This is kind of what I'm seeing. Also, is this a bottom layer of Maslow's hierarchy of needs that we need to look at? Hunger, sleep, sickness, those things. Like, obviously, we got to look there first because they aren't going to be able to do the other things until we do. And last, I like to kind of question myself. Are the expectations for this child's age and their prior experiences appropriate. So am I asking too much of this child who has never done this before, has never been in a childcare setting? Am I asking too much? And I like to ask myself that to make sure that my expectations aren't off. 
And again, ask other teachers for advice. The times when I feel overwhelmed with a student, I like to talk it out with my teacher friends because it's always great having someone else's perspective who isn't so close to the situation. I want to end by acknowledging that some behavior struggles are out of the realm of our expertise. Yes, we're educational rock stars, but we can't be all the things some children need. Sometimes we have to accept that while we try our very best, the child may have needs more than we can just handle. So having that open communication with parents and your administration can be key in helping get that child what they need. If you have enjoyed this behavior management series on the podcast here, I wanted to let you know about a free training I have available. It's a five-day video series replay where you can learn about how to change your mindset around classroom management and with the mindset shift, couple with some quality strategies to help you manage your preschool classroom, you're not going to need all the fluffy systems. Now, this training will have a lot of the same points as this podcast did, but definitely in a more visual format. So if you want to re-listen or you want to retouch those those points that you heard in this podcast series, head on over to the show notes and I'll have a link in there for you to register for this classroom management training. It's called Brighten Up Your Classroom Management. You can find the show notes at lovelycommotion.com slash episode 73. Have a great day, y'all. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with a friend. This helps me spread the word and help more preschool teachers just like you. Keep being lovely. Lovely.